0: CHAPTER SEVENTEEN OF FIRST ON THE MOON BY JEFF SUTTON. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. Martin Larkwell was a good boy, the superintendent said reminiscently, and, of course, we're highly pleased he's made his mark in the world. He looked at the agent and beamed, or should I say the moon. The agent smiled dutifully. Young Martin was particularly good with his hands. Not that he wasn't smart, he added hurriedly, he was very bright, in fact, but he was fortunate in that he coupled it with an almost uncanny knack of using his hands. The superintendent rambled at length. The agent listened, thinking it was the same old story. The men in the moon were all great men. They had been fine upstanding boys, all bright with spotless records, Well, of course, that was to be expected in view of the rigorous weeding-out program which had resulted in their selections. Only one of them was a trader. Which one? The question drummed against his mind. Martin wasn't just a study drudge, the superintendent was saying. He was a fine athlete. The star forward on the Maple Hill Orphanage basketball team for three years, he added proudly. He leaned forward and lowered his voice, as if taking the agent into his confidence. We're conducting a drive to build the orphanage a new gym. Maybe you can guess the name we've selected for it. The Martin Larkwell gymnasium, the agent said dryly. Right, the superintendent beamed, that's how much we think of Martin Larkwell. As it turned out, the superintendent wasn't the only one who remembered Martin Larkwell with fondness. A druggist, a grocer, a gas station operator, and a little gray lady who ran a pet shop remembered the orphan boy with surprising affection, they and many others. That's the way the chips fall, the agent thought philosophically. Let a man become famous, and the whole world remembers him. Well, his job was to separate the wheat from the chaff. In the days that followed, he painstakingly traced Martin Larkwell's trail, from the Maple Hill Orphanage to New York, to various construction jobs along the East Coast, and finally, through other agents, to a two-year stint in Argentina as a construction boss for an American equipment firm. Later the trail led back to America, and finally, to construction foreman on Project Step 1. His selection as a member of the Aztec crew stemmed from his excellent work and construction ability displayed during building of the drones. All in all, the agent thought the record was clear and shiny bright. Martin Larkwell, Gordon Nagel, Max Procheska, Adam Craig, four eager, scrub-faced American boys, each outstanding in his field. There was only one hitch. Who was the traitor? Craig filled Gotch in on the latest developments in Crater Arzachel. The colonel listened without interruption until he was through, then retaliated with a barrage of questions. What was the extent of the radioactive field? What were the dimensions of Red Dog? Had any progress been made toward salvaging the cargo of Drone Baker? How was the airlock in the rill progressing? Would he please describe the rocket launcher the enemy had used to destroy the Aztec. Craig gritted his teeth to keep from exploding, barely managing civil replies. Finally, he could hold it no longer. "'Listen,' he grated. "'This is a four-man crew, not a damn army.' "'Certainly,' Gotch interrupted. "'I appreciate your difficulties. I was just, in a matter of speaking, outlining what has to be done.' As if I didn't know. The colonel pressed for his future plans. Craig told him what he thought in no uncertain terms. When he finished, he thought, he heard a soft chuckle over the earphones. Damn, Gotch, he thought, the man is a sadist. The colonel gave him another morsel of information, a tidbit that mollified him. Pickering Field, Gotch informed him, was now the official name of the landing site in Crater Arzachel. Furthermore... The Air Force was petitioning the Joint Chiefs to make it an official part of the U.S. Air Force defense system, a fact which had been announced to the world. Furthermore, the United States had petitioned the U.N. to recognize its sovereignty over the moon. Before cutting off, he added one last bit of information, switching to moon code to give it. Atom job, near completion, he spelled out. For the moment, Craig felt jubilant. An atom-powered spaceship spelled complete victory over the Eastern world. It also meant Venus, Mars, magical names in his mind. Man was on his way to the stars. Man, the peripatetic quester. For just an instant, he felt a pang of jealousy. He'd be pinned to his vacuum while men were conquering the planets. Or would he? But the mood passed. Pickering Field, he realized, would play an important role in the future of space flight. If it weren't the stars, at least, it was the jump-off. In time, it would be a vast Air Force base, housing rockets instead of stratojets. Pickering Base, the jump-off, the road to the stars. Pretty soon the place would be filled with ranks so high that bird colonels would be doing mess duty. But right now, he was Mr. Pickering Field, the man with the brass eyeballs. While the others caught up on their sleep, Craig and Prochaska reviewed their homework, as the chief had dubbed their planning sessions. The area in which Bandit rested was too far from the nearest rill to use as a base of operation, and it was also vulnerable to meteorite damage. Bandit had to be abandoned, and soon. Red Dog, would be their next home. There was also the problem of salvaging the contents of Drone Baker and removing the contents of Drone Charlie. Last, there was the problem of building the airlock in one of the rills. When they had laid out the problems, they exchanged quizzical glances. The chief smiled weakly. Seems like a pretty big order. A very big order, Craig amended. The first move is to secure Red Dog. They talked about it until Craig found his eyelids growing heavy. Porcheska, although tired, volunteered to take the watch. Craig nodded gratefully. A little sleep was something he could use. Red Dog was squat ebony, tapered-nosed, distinguishable from the lithic structures, dotting this section of Crater Arzachel only by its symmetry. The grotesque rock ledges, needle-sharp pinnacles, and twisted formations of the plain clearly were the handiwork of a nature in the throes of birth, when volcanoes burst and the floor of the crater was an uneasy sea of white-hot, magmatic rock. Red Dog was just as clearly the creation of some other-world artificer, a creature born of the intelligence and patience of man. structured to cross the planetary voids. Yet it seemed a part of the plane, as ancient as the brooding Dolomites and Diorites, which made the floor of Arsicle a lithic wonderland. The tail of Red Dog was buried in the ash of the plane. Its body reached upward, canted slightly from the vertical, as if it were ready to spring again to the stars. The rocket launcher had been removed. Now it stood on the plane off to one side of the rocket, small and portable, like some deadly insect. The launcher bothered Crag. He wanted to destroy it, or the single missile that remained, but was deterred by its possible use if the enemy should land another man's ship. In the end he left it where it was. One of the numerous rills which crisscrossed the floor of the crater, cut near the base of the rocket, at a distance of about ten yards. It was a shallow rill, about twelve feet wide and ten feet deep, with a bottom of soft ash. Adam Craig studied the rocket and rill in turn, a plan gradually forming in his mind. The rocket could be toppled, its engines removed, and an airlock installed in the tail section, as had been done with the Aztec. It could be lowered into the rill, and its body, all except the airlock, "'covered with ash. "'Material salvaged from the drones "'could be used to construct extensions "'running along the floor of the rill, "'and these, in turn, covered with ash. "'This, then, would be the first moonlock, "'a place where man could live, "'safe from the constant danger of destruction "'by chance meteorites. "'He looked thoughtfully at the sun. "'It was an unbearable circle of white light hanging in the purple-black sky just above the horizon. Giant black shadows crept out from the towering walls of the crater. Within another twenty-four hours, they would engulf the rocket. During the lunar night two weeks long, the crater floor would be gripped in the cold of absolute space. The rocket would lie in a Stygian night, broken only by the brilliance of the stars and the reflected light of an Earth which would seem to fill the sky. But they couldn't wait for the advent of a new day. They would have to get started immediately. Larkwell opposed the idea of working through the long lunar night. He argued that the suits would not offer sufficient protection against the cold. They needed light to work, and that the slow progress they would make wouldn't warrant the risks and discomfort they would have to undergo nagel unexpectedly sided with craig he cited the waste of oxygen which resulted by having to decompress bandit every time someone left or entered the ship we need an airlock and soon he said craig listened and weighed the arguments larkwell was right the spacesuits weren't made to withstand prolonged exposure during the bitter hours of the lunar night but nagel was right too I doubt we could live cooped up in bandit for two weeks without murdering one another, Procheska observed quietly. I vote we go ahead. Sure, you sit on your fanny and monitor the radio, Larkwell growled. I'm the guy who has to carry the load. Procheska reddened and started to answer when Craig cut in. Cut the damn bickering, he snapped. Max handles the communication because that's his job. He looked sharply at Larkwell. The construction boss grunted, but didn't reply. Night and bitter cold came the crater Arzachel with a staggering blow. Instantly, the plane became a black pit lighted only by the stars and the enormous crescent of the Earth, an airless pit in which the temperature plunged until metal became as brittle as glass and the materials of the spacesuits stiffened until craig feared they would crack larkwell warned against continuing their work one misstep in lowering red dog and it'll shatter like an egg craig realized he was right lowering the rocket in the bitter cold and blackness would be a superhuman job loss of the rocket would be disastrous against this was the necessity of obtaining shelter from the meteor falls his determination was fortified by the discovery that a stray meteorite had smashed the nose of Drone Charlie. He decided to go on. The cold seeped through their suits, chilled their bones, touched their arms and legs like a thousand pinpricks, and lay like needles in their lungs until every movement was sheer agony. Yet their survival depended upon movement, hence every movement away from Bandit was filled with forced activity. But even the space cabin of Bandit was more like an outsized icebox than a place designed for human habitation. The rocket's insulated walls were ice to the touch. Their breaths were frosty streams. Sleep was possible only because of utter fatigue. At the end of each work shift, the body simply rebelled against the task of retaining consciousness. Thus a few hours of merciful respite against the cold was obtained. Craig assigned Prochaska the task of monitoring the radio, despite his plea to share in the more arduous work. The knowledge that one of his crew was a saboteur lay constantly in his mind. He had risked leaving Prochaska alone before. He could risk it again, but he wasn't willing to risk leaving any of the others alone in bandit. Yet Prochaska hadn't found the bomb. Larkwell had worked superhumanly at the task of rebuilding the Aztec. Nagel had saved his life when he could just as easily have left him die. Neither seemed the work of a saboteur. Yet the cold fact remained. There was a saboteur. Richter, too, preyed on his mind. The self-styled Eastern scientist was noncommittal, SPEAKING ONLY WHEN SPOKEN TO. YET HE PERFORMED HIS ASSIGNED DUTIES WITHOUT HESITATION. HE HAD, IN FACT, MADE HIMSELF SO USEFUL THAT HE ALMOST SEEMED ONE OF THE CREW. THAT, CRAIG TOLD HIMSELF, WAS THE DANGER. THE TENDENCY WAS TO STOP WATCHING Richter, TO TRUST HIM FARTHER AND FARTHER. WAS HE PLANNING, BIDING HIS TIME, PREPARING TO STRIKE? HOW? WHEN? HE WISHED HE KNEW. They toppled Red Dog in the dark of the moon. Larkwell had run two cables to manually operate winches set about twenty-five yards from the rocket. A second line extended from each winch to the ravine. The ends of these were weighted with rocks. They served to anchor the winches during the lowering of the rocket. Finally a guide line ran from the nose of the rocket to a third winch. Richter and Nagel manned the lowering winches, while Larkwell worked with the guideline, with only small hand torches to aid them. It was approximately the same setup used on the Aztec. They were getting good at it. Craig helped until the moment came to lower the rocket. Then there was little for him to do. He contented himself with watching the operation, playing his torch over the scene as he felt it was needed. It was an eerie feeling. The rocket was a black monster bathed in the puny yellow rays of their hand torches. The pale light gave the illusion of movement until the rocket, the rocks, and the very floor of the crater seemed to writhe and squirm, playing tricks on the eyes. It was, he knew, a dangerous moment, one ripe for a saboteur to strike, or ripe for Richter. It was dark not an ebony dark but one rather with the odd color of milky velvet the earth was almost full a gigantic globe whose reflected light washed out the brilliance of the stars and gave a milky sheen to crater arzachel it was a light in which the eye detected form as if it were looking through a murky sea it detected form but missed details only the gross structures of the plane were visible the blackness of the rocket reaching upward into the night, fantastic twisted rocks which blotted out segments of the stars, the black blobs of men moving in heavy spacesuits, dark shadows against the still darker night. The eerie, almost futile beams of the hand torches seemed worse than useless. All set, Larkwell's voice was grim. Let her come. Craig fastened his eyes on the nose of Red Dog, a tapered, indistinct silhouette. Start letting out the line at the count of three. There was a pause before Larkwell began the countdown. One, two, three. The nose moved, swinging slowly across the sky, then began falling. Slack off. The lines jerked, snapped taut, and the nose hung suspended in space then began swinging to one side. Take up your line, Richter. The sideway movement stopped, leaving the rocket canted at an angle of about 45 degrees. Okay. The nose moved down again, slower this time. Craig began to breathe easier. Suddenly, the nose skidded to the rear, falling. Then the rocket was a motionless blob on the plane. That did it. Larkwell's voice was ominous, yet tinged with disgust. What happened? Craig found himself shouting into the lip mic. The tail slipped. That's what we get for trying to lower it under these conditions, Larkwell snarled. The damn thing's probably smashed. Craig didn't answer. He moved slowly toward the rocket, playing his torch over its hull in an attempt to discern its details. He was conscious that the others had come up and were doing the same thing. But even when he stood next to it, Red Dog was no more than a black shadow. "'Feel it,' Larkwell barked. "'That's the only way to tell. The torches are useless.' They followed his advice. Craig walked alongside the rocket, moving his hand over the smooth surface. He had reached the tail and started back on the opposite side, when Larkwell's voice rang in his ears. "'Smashed! Where? The underside, where she hit the deck. Looks like she came down on a rock.' Craig hurried back around the rocket, nearly stumbling over Larkwell's legs. The construction boss was lying on his stomach. "'Under here!' Craig dropped to his knees, then to his stomach, and moved alongside Larkwell, playing his beam over the hull. He saw the break immediately, a ragged gaping hole, where the metal had shattered against a small rock outcropping. Too big for a weld? Larkwell answered his unspoken thought. You'll play hell getting that welded. It might be possible. There may be more breaks. They lay there for a moment, playing their beams along the visible underside of Red Dog, until they were satisfied that, in this section at least, there was no more damage. "'What now?' Larkwell asked, when they had crawled back from under the rocket. "'The plans haven't changed,' Craig said stonily. "'We repair it, fix it up, move in. That's all there is to it.' "'You can't fix it by just saying so,' Larkwell growled. 1st it's got to be fixable. It looks like a cooked duck to me.' "'We gotta start back,' Nagel said urgently. "'Oxygen's getting low.' Craig looked at his gauge. Nagel was right. They'd have to get moving. He was about to give the signal to return to Bandit when Richter spoke up. It can be repaired. For a moment there was a startled silence. How? The inside of the cabin is lined with foam rubber, the same as in Bandit. A self-sealing type, designed for protection against meteorite damage. So... Larkwell asked belligerently. Richter explained. It's not porous. If the brake were covered with metal and lined with foam, it would do a pretty good job of sealing the cabin. You can't patch a leak that big with rubber and expect it to hold, Larkwell argued. Hell, the pressure would blow right through. Not if you line the brake with metal first, Richter persisted. The suggestion startled Craig, coming as it did from a man whom he regarded as an enemy. For a moment he wondered if the German's instinct for survival were greater than his patriotism. But the plan sounded plausible. He asked Larkwell, "'What do you think?' "'Could be,' he replied noncommittally. He didn't seem pleased that Richter was intruding in a sphere which he considered his own. Craig gave a last look at the silhouette of the fallen giant on the plane and announced— We'll try it. If it doesn't work, we're in the soup, Larkwell insisted. Suppose there are more breaks. We'll patch those, too, Craig snapped. He felt an unreasonable surge of anger toward the construction boss. He sucked his lip vexedly, then turned his torch on his oxygen meter. We'd better get moving. End of chapter 17